0: Buying a house in Canada is becoming increasingly difficult and unaffordable, particularly in the major cities. Governments have now acknowledged the problem and they're starting to throw money at it. But will that actually help? I'm Candice Malcolm and this is The Candice Malcolm Show. Everyone, thank you so much for tuning into the podcast today. So as we saw in last week's budget, the government has acknowledged the fact that there is a housing crisis in Canada. They have pledged to spend $10 billion from the budget, from your money, from borrowed money, to help ease the problem of Canada's housing crisis. So joining me today to talk about this issue and to figure out whether this money is going to actually help people buy homes, I'm very pleased today to be joined by Chris Spoke. Chris Spoke is the founder and CEO of August, which is a boutique agency that designs and builds digital products. In 2017, he launched YIMBY, which stands for Yes in My Backyard Advocacy Group, uh, housing Matters, which aims to advance the cause of land use liberalization in Toronto in order to solve the urban housing problem. Chris is a contributor over at The Hub. He also has a newsletter on Substack. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to have you.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: Okay, so first, uh, what was your reaction uh, of the budget? Do you think that this ten billion million in spending is, is a good start to addressing this issue?
1: So, so I had a few reactions. The first reaction, you know, I expected to be uh, disappointed in the diagnosis of of the housing problem. I expected there to be kind of a love hand waving around the need for more low market rate or affordable housing without any real addressing the fact that we just don't have enough housing at all, you know, market rate or, or otherwise. And when I read the budget, there was a lot of good kind of supply side Yimby type language. Like there were quotes in there that could have been from pieces that I've written. Like if we want housing to be more affordable, we need to build more housing. Um, there was an acknowledgement that the reason why we're not building more housing is because there are systemic constraints, regulatory constraints. So I, I thought I thought that was all good. I think Krista Freeland kind of understands the Yimby argument. The Yimby argument very succinctly put is that housing is expensive because there's not enough of it. And when you have whenever you have a situation where a lot of people are chasing after kind of like an insufficient amount of, of stuff, um, they bid prices up and that's what we've seen with with housing. Um, what I'm less sure about uh, is whether, you know, throwing money at the problem will, will will solve it. I mean, ultimately, again, housing is expensive because there's not enough of it. There's not enough of it mostly because our cities enact rules and regulations that make it harder to build housing than it should be. Um, and it's not clear to me that you solve that with more money as opposed to kind of like getting into the weeds and, and uprooting some of these things. Um, one of the things that was kind of directionally addressing this problem was it's called the new housing accelerator fund. So in the federal budget, they've set $4 billion aside that they want to spend over five years to kind of incent municipalities to upzone or expedite maybe their approvals process to get more housing built and completed um, and brought online for occupancy. And I think the real test for this government will be you know, how aggressive they are in getting that money out to cities and ensuring that it's being used most effectively. So being basically ensuring that the municipalities are doing their part of the bargain and actually meaningfully upzoning, meaningfully allowing for more housing supply than than they otherwise would.
0: Well, that's that's part of the issue. Whenever I, I end up talking about housing with people, they always say, "Oh, well, it's a municipal issue. The feds can't really do anything about it without sort of stepping in on the jurisdiction." I know that Pierre Polyev has been talking a lot about the sort of things that he would do. So, 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 what, what do you think of that sort of dilemma of of you know letting municipalities govern their own business, leaving things up to the province, um, letting individual provinces? I mean, I mean, the idea is that you could kind of have competing jurisdictions, right? Vancouver is like pricing itself out of the affordable game. Young people just don't want to live in Vancouver. It's it's a spectacular, beautiful city. I grew up there and you have this amazing lifestyle and and sort of the leisure opportunities are incredible. But when it comes to young families and, and homes are just not there. I, I grew up in a very family friendly area right in the center of Vancouver neighborhood called Carisdale. And you go there today and there's just not really a lot of families anymore because it's, it's just become one of those places that's so unaffordable. So so, so what, do, what do you think to that argument of uh, it's not really a federal government's job, leave it up to the provinces and the cities and they can compete?
1: Yeah, I think I think there's like two parts of the argument. There's one, um, should the federal government do anything about it? And then the second is, if, if, if the answer to that question is yes, then what could they do about it? Um, because you do have these kind of like jurisdictional issues. I think on the first question, I, I think you, you kind of have to. Um, a Conservative Party is having a leadership race right now. You have a few candidates um, kind of lining up, hoping that they, they win that spot and they kind of enter the next general election as the leader of the Conservative Party. I think it's, it's hard to make the case that whoever that person is shouldn't address what is probably the number one issue for a large and growing number of Canadians. I mean we saw in the last general election, um, just last year, not that long ago, the National Post surveyed people on what were their kind of election priorities, like policy priorities. And the number one was cost of living. And number three was housing, and, and that's kind of like repeating the same point. So I think that I think that the federal government has to have something to say about runaway housing costs and the fact that you have a whole generation um, really being priced out of home ownership, which we see as somewhat, you know a part of what we think of as the Canadian dream. I also think that there's this national productivity problem that gets worse if you don't make it easier for smart, ambitious young people to move to the most productive regions in the country. If we allow housing prices to be kind of the obstacle to moving to where all the good jobs are, ultimately that will kind of show itself in national productivity statistics and ultimately GDP growth.
0: Well, no, it's interesting. You you mentioned that point that like you want productive people to end up in the same places because then they become more productive. And I know that the government has often tried to create these sort of hubs in places like Waterloo, Ontario, or or in Toronto, Vancouver. It seems to me increasingly, especially with COVID, what we just saw, is that people are leaving those areas, right? Like everyone used to go to the Silicon Valley to start a tech company. They don't anymore. They go to Dallas or they go to Austin, they go to Miami, and, and you kind of see people leaving poorly governed places in the United States to go to, go to kind of freer, uh, more affordable places where there are these new kind of upstart tech communities i know you're a tech guy you're heavily involved in, in the sort of tech community as a founder and I, i'm wondering if you see anything like that happening in canada where people are moving to places that are more affordable like maybe some place like saskatoon or, or somewhere even in ontario that's outside of the gta because they're just getting priced out of the expensive markets there
1: yeah i i, th- I think i think that's right i think so so kind of like the way i approach this is thinking of cities as primarily labor markets people move to cities for access to the jobs that those cities offer. And typically the larger the city, the greater the opportunity to specialize in trade. And this is why you have kind of really niche jobs in cities, which you might not have in in smaller towns or rural areas, and also why productivity rates and wages are higher in cities. And yeah, what you're seeing in the U.S. is um, people kind of leaving some cities for other cities, but they typically still go to cities. There are these agglomeration effects. And if you look at the tech community, I mean, a lot of them are going to Austin or Miami because more of their peers and other tech workers are going to Austin, Miami. So they're still trying to like establish this critical mass of people in these areas. And I think this kind of, this reflects a general approach that you have when you're faced with bad governments, right? You could you could exercise your voice, you could try to vote for change or lobby for change, or you could exercise your right to exit and to kind of go somewhere that's a little bit um, a little bit better. Maybe it's easier to move from San Francisco to Austin than it is to upend San Francisco's municipal government. I think the challenge that we have in Canada is that we don't have as many options in terms of like better governed cities that still have a dense enough agglomeration of, you know, workers in whatever sector is interesting to you um, to make it this kind of like laboratory of democracy or, or, or like menu or this like menu, long menu of, of, of options to choose from. Most of our cities where most of our big cities are extremely expensive and the small cities that are, aren't yet expensive are typically the cities that haven't seen great employment prospects. So you have a lot of people, for example, in Toronto moving to Hamilton. Hamilton's no longer affordable. So now they're moving out to Halifax. And Halifax is a bit more affordable, but you don't have the same job opportunities that you might have in the GTA. So I think it's a bit of both. I think that you put pressure on municipal politicians by showing them that they're going to lose the opportunity to benefit from you know young, productive, taxpaying workers. But I think there is still something to be said for trying to improve governance. I think there's something to be said for people who stay back in San Francisco to try to improve land use in san francisco because it's kind of like this golden goose um that you'd rather bring back that's been dying that you'd rather bring back to life than just kind of like try to find another golden goose to some extent
0: is, is there a city in Canada that you can point to as a, as a good example? I remember seeing a presentation a few years ago that compared the urban density in Vancouver and compared it to New York City. And it, I, I mean, at one point, I'm sure 100, 150 years ago, there were a lot of single family homes in and around New York. And that has turned all into apartments and brownstones and that kind of thing. And the expectation in New York is not that you live in a single family home, where as in Vancouver, that's very much still the expectation. Uh, people don't want to, they, they want to protect the beauty of the neighborhood, the natural character. You see that all around uh, Toronto, these neighborhoods that are so close to downtown. And yet, they, they, if you feel like you're out in the, in the suburbs because, because there's just beautiful yards and lawns and, and people live this, this sort of very uh, spread out lifestyle. Uh, whereas again, in, in big, dense American and, and cities all over the world, Europe, Asia, they don't have that expectation. So I'm, I'm just wondering if there are any examples in Canada uh, that have moved more towards the dense uh, multi-unit Model or wh- wh- whether it's a Canadian problem? Wh- why is it happening in so many of the cities across the country?
1: Yeah, so whenever you see like a detached house with a big backyard in something like a big city urban center, which which you certainly see very near Toronto's downtown and Vancouver's downtown, it's almost always. I mean, it, I mean, it's pretty much always because of zoning. Like, there's a higher and better use for that land if it were unconstrained. More people want to live in these downtown cores again for access to these downtown jobs. And the reason why you're not seeing that redevelopment to a higher and better use is because there's some sort of regulatory constraint, and mostly that's mostly zoning. Um, so, New York has the benefit of having been mostly built up tree zoning. So, the really aggressive kind of like separation of land uses and really prescriptive uh, land use zoning that we see today really came into effect in the 60s and 70s and have been ramping up and becoming more prescriptive and more descriptive ever since. Um, and, and, and again, like Toronto over the last 20 years has started to, to, to grow into a, you know, some, something like the idea of a global city. It was a little bit sleepy in the 1960s, whereas Manhattan went through its transformation of, of like a lot of farmland to detached houses, to maybe three-story, four-story walk-ups to tenements and high-rises, in the early 1900s and, and, and all of that happened pre-zoning pre-aggressive zoning at least um so in, in canada where you'll see most of that so let's say kind of like an older urban built form where it's a little bit more dense and you don't see um big 50-foot wide frontages and single detached homes near downtown uh, you have to look at our older cities so like montreal is more dense in its urban core than toronto is and toronto is more dense in its urban core than calgary is and it's because the you know, the later and later or more recently that the cities have been developed, the more likely they were to have been constrained by modern zoning.
0: So let's talk a little bit about the NIMBY concern, because it seems like Canada is becoming very much a country of haves versus have-nots. The politics of it is that, uh, you know, a lot of Canadians like like you are, are voicing concern over the lack of housing, lack of opportunity for buying houses for young families or young Canadians. Uh, whereas on the other side of the coin, you have all these people that own homes and are perfectly happy with the rapid acceleration of costs. They want to protect their neighborhoods, right? They, they don't want uh, a high-rise going in down the street because they like, they, they, you know, they want to protect it for their children. They want the kids to be able to run around and go to parks. And they worry that, the, you know, with if, if it becomes very dense, it'll become dangerous. And uh, all, all these other problems that you see in cities where people go to neighborhoods to avoid that. Uh, so, 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 so maybe you can walk us through uh, sort of the distinction, uh, like what drives NIMBYism and what you're trying to do with your uh, EMB organization that's that's promoting a change to all this?
1: Yeah, so, so to put a little bit of color around kind of like the NIMBY, the NIMBY label. So again, we say that housing is expensive because there's not enough of it. There's not enough of it mostly because of municipal regulatory supply constraints that make it impossible for us to build as much of it as we need. And the reason why we have those supply constraints is because, you know, to your point, a lot of incumbent homeowners enjoy them, quite enjoy them. Um, if you live in a detached neighborhood or, or house, a neighborhood, sorry, rather full of detached houses, um, you might want it to remain that way. You might like the bill form, the physical character, and you might not want to see, you know, like a four-story walk-up apartment pop up next door with renters who are a little bit more, um, transient, let's say than like longtime homeowners. So that is the problem. Like we've reached this equilibrium through a very democratic process of people buying homes in low-rise, low-density neighborhoods, and then voting to ensure that they never changed. Um, the, the, the problem with that is that there's a little bit of a hypocrisy, if not like an outright schizophrenia here, right? Like Canadians are generally a pretty progressive people. We're very welcoming and open to immigration. Um, and yet somehow that kind of like stops at our neighborhood, right? So we want more people to enter this country, to come to the country, to participate in the Canadian dream, contribute economically. Uh, but we don't want to build um, the housing that, that new immigrants need, at least not in our neighborhoods. And of course, if everybody says, I'm, I'm pro new development and new housing, just not in my neighborhood, you know, if, if everybody in every neighborhood says that, then you just end up building nothing. And that's that's kind of what we're seeing. Um, I think we're reaching a bit of a tipping point where people who've enjoyed these really runaway housing value gains that um, have, have served them quite well, they're now reaching an age and a point where they're thinking like, okay, I, I remember what it was like in my late 20s to save a little bit of money in a nice middle-class working-class job and buy a home. But that's not that doesn't seem to be the scenario for my kid who who doesn't look like they'll be able to buy a home anytime soon, if if ever. Um, It's also not great for these people who might want to live somewhere near their kids and their grandkids, and now their kids and grandkids are moving from let's say Toronto to Halifax. So I think it is starting to hit home that um, there's this incumbent versus new entrant um, dynamic, which you see in most industries, Um, but in this one, you know, the incumbents might be related to the new entrants, and they're starting to realize you know, despite the 20, 30% gains I've seen over the last 20 years, or, re- or sorry, rather the last two years, um, that also means that home ownership has gone that much farther away from my kids. And, and I think it's, it's becoming becoming a little bit of a problem. There, there's also this problem with housing, not building enough housing beyond just the affordability thing. So in Toronto, we have a lot of people, again, a lot of progressive people open to immigration, as long as, you know, those immigrants don't build or don't move into any new uh, built rental apartments in their neighborhoods. Um, we also have environmental concerns, right? But when it comes to cities people again move to cities because that's where the jobs are if you don't build up you you have to build out so you have people who have these again kind of schizophrenic views where they're both against infill development in their neighborhoods for NIMU reasons but they're also against urban expansion and sprawl for environmental reasons and at some point like you have to resolve these contradictions and i think the way that you resolve them is to allow for a little bit more of of a kind of like free market and land use stronger property rights and less restrictions in terms of what you can build and kind of let let entrepreneurs build things that people need. And in this case, that's build housing that people need.
0: It's interesting because during the pandemic, it was like, uh, you know, downtown Toronto just kind of emptied out and you had all these commercial buildings that people just weren't using anymore. And a lot of families moved out of Toronto because they, they didn't have to commute anymore. And you know, maybe they just wanted to get into the into the real estate market wherever they could. So they ended up moving far out. And then, and then now all of a sudden, everyone has to return back to the office. So I hear a lot of people kind of, Groaning and complaining about have, having to commute now because they they ended up buying. So far, I I I want to touch on the immigration um, thing that you discussed because obviously there's a lot of discussion over what's driving this, right? That I know you're much more of a supply side that we just need to build a lot more, but there are obviously demand issues when you when you look at things like Airbnb um, taking up space. I I I completely agree with that. I disagree with that because I tend to think that people who uh, put their homes on Airbnb. Uh, it's usually, it's, uh, so occasionally, my family and I will go to Vancouver um, to visit. My family will rent an Airbnb house almost every time. It's a family that actually lives in the house, and they'll go on a vacation, and they'll and they'll rent out their house while they're away to kind of help subsidize the cost of living in a very uh, desirable area. But 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 th- this idea that that you have, I, I, I don't know exactly how many new families move to the GTA every year. I imagine it's a large percentage of, of Canada's immigration numbers. So if we're welcoming in 450,000 people a year, we might have 350,000 of those coming into the GTA. Uh, you wrote in the Hub recently that over the past 10 years in Ontario, uh, there's been an ab- average completion of 70,000 new homes per year. Uh, that, that Ontario is, uh, that Canada's last in the G7 in terms of per capita housing. And just to catch up, we would need to build 1 million new housing units overnight uh, j- just to keep up with this population growth. Uh, So so can can, can you comment a little bit about um, the the impact of welcoming all these people into Canada, but not having anywhere to house them and and what what that's doing um, to our cities, to to a place like Toronto or Ontario?
1: Yeah, totally. So so prices, as we all know from like our first year microeconomics classes are a function of supply and demand. Um, If the demand for housing increases, because people within the country move from like small towns, rural areas, to big cities, And people from around the world move to Canada for access to, you know, everything that Canada has to offer. Um, That's the demand side of things. Um, And if we don't build enough housing for them, then we have limited supply and ultimately this resolves itself in rising prices, a higher equilibrium and people kind of getting priced out and left behind. Um, So, so that's absolutely right. And, And you could kind of confront this fact with, with, I guess, one or two approaches. You could think, that what we need is a supply side uh, solution, which is to build many more homes to accommodate many more people or with a demand side solution, which is ultimately to somehow have fewer people looking for housing. So that might be a reduction in immigration. It might be like somehow making cities less attractive relative to smaller towns where housing is a little bit more abundant or a little bit less scarce, at least. Um, and, and, And the way I think about this is kind of like, what is the most productive outcome? I think the supply side solution is really a solution of building, of production, of entrepreneurship, of creating jobs and stuff for people to enjoy and live in. Um, whereas a demand side solution is ultimately a little bit of a zero-sum game, right? It's kind of picking winners and losers. Even we t- when we talk about uses of real estate, you know, should this be a long-term rental apartment or a short-term rental apartment? Maybe we should outlaw short-term rent- rental apartments. It's always this zero-sum game that has to come at the cost of something that people want. People want to rent Airbnbs and stay in Airbnbs. Whereas if you build more Um, that kind of that's a positive sum game we're expanding the pie we're making more goods available to more people now that comes at the cost of maybe increased shadow impacts on the neighborhood neighbors or more more competition for like on-street parking or maybe construction noise for the two years that it takes to build anything and and ultimately that's what kind of feeds the nimby resistance to these things um but we have to kind of pick our costs right is it is it better to kind of accept the cost of localized impacts of development which might mean that If you go downtown Toronto, you won't see beautiful detached houses, you know, just north of the bridge in Rosedale. Um, Or is the cost that we maintain this extremely rigid and restrictive system and exacerbate urban sprawl, make housing completely unaffordable to anybody under the age of, let's say 30 or 35, Never mind new immigrants who are entering this with no kind of skin in the game. They haven't benefited from the home equity value increases the last few years. They're coming into this fresh. Um, We kind of have to pick, pick our costs here. And and, in my view, um, I'd, I'd rather much sorry much rather take the perspective that abundance is better than scarcity, and we should make housing, which is as fundamental a good as as we have in society, as abundant as possible. And I think that that leads to a lot of a lot of good outcomes.
0: Well, it, it's, it's sort of fundamentally unfair as well to tell all these people from around the world, hey, come to Canada, have this great life. You know, of course, a lot of them are going to choose Toronto because that's the place where they have a community where there are other people who speak their language, where they can find their food and, and they can they can find a community of people uh, that they feel comfortable with. And, and yet, you know, they have no way of, of being able to easily, unless they're very wealthy, uh, being able to buy into this, this market. Uh, but then at the same time, at some point, we have to have other attractive places for people to live aside from Toronto. I, I know a lot of people from all over the country that move to Toronto because the type of work that they do, the type of law or the type of tech, uh, there just aren't jobs in, in other parts of the country. I'm wondering uh, if, you, if you can comment on j- just sort of the, the fact that everyone in Canada wants to go to Toronto. How, how can you you know, as, as, a, as an influencer or as a, as a politician or as someone in government, how can you create incentives for people to want to go to other cities? I know we talked about this earlier in the interview where, you know, you, you, you might be able to go f- afford a place in Halifax, but the job market isn't really there. It's like, it's kind of like the chicken and the egg thing. It's like you want people to go, but there's no jobs. Well, there's no jobs because there's no people. Uh, how, how, would, how would you, like, if, if you were to create a strategy, how, how would you encourage people to move to cities outside of these sort of very desirable places, Vancouver? Calgary, Toronto, um, to try to build up the rest of the country with people and have other hubs that that are attractive to people. Yeah,
1: so so what I'm surprised is that we're not seeing more competition. All these kind of smaller cities that would benefit from a larger tax base and more, let's say, dynamism and, and vibrancy in their in their cities. I'm surprised that we haven't seen them more proactively court, let's say, Toronto expats um, in the U.S. Famously, Mayor Suarez of Miami like had a concerted Marketing plan to get people from Silicon Valley and from San Francisco and the Bay Area to move to Miami specifically And he was out there kind of like waving the Miami flag and telling everybody why Miami's so great And we haven't really seen that in Canada and I'm a little bit surprised um, I mean, I mean the reason why the, the, the reason why we probably haven't seen that is that every City government and every mayor is constrained to some extent by the same kind of NIMBY sentiment so that, you know, the existing homeowners in, in Halifax might not be so happy or excited about Torontonians moving into Halifax and bidding up their neighborhoods and contributing to traffic congestion and all these things. Um, so so, so that, that's the first point that I, I would like to see just more competition between cities. I would like to see people understand a little bit better the benefits of density and a growing population as opposed to a declining population and be a little bit more proactive to encourage that. Um, But I do think this has to be somewhat of kind of like a market-led process. I think it's very hard to plan this from the top down to kind of decide, okay, financial services will stay in Toronto, but we're going to move AI to Montreal. This is what the superclusters try to do, right? We're going to move blockchain development to Calgary, AI to Montreal, and basically try to like organize these things from the Ministry of Innovation or something like that. I think ultimately people have to sort themselves out to whatever the market kind of feedback loops are telling them. Um, I do think that COVID has, to your point, um, enhanced the ability to work remotely. We've seen a lot more of that through COVID necessarily. And now because we've implemented all these systems, people are kind of, to some extent, sticking with them. So maybe we will see a little bit more of a discount placed on living you know, super close together where you could see someone face-to-face in an office. And maybe that increases the relative attractiveness of decentralizing a little bit how we live. Um, but that's also been the promise of the internet since its advent. We haven't really seen that. We've actually seen a concentration in cities and an increased uh, in density in cities. There's something about humans living and operating and interacting closely together that seems to be appealing. And, and we all keep paying higher rents than we need to be by, by moving to big cities and, and living in smaller you know, units than we otherwise could. So I, I don't know what I would suggest as like a top-down kind of government-led plan other than to encourage more cities to adopt more of this kind of like abundance CMB agenda, right? So Halifax could very quickly become as unaffordable as any other city if it doesn't respond to this increased demand by building more housing. So it needs to build more housing. Um, the U.S. benefits from more, I think, pronounced cultural um, and ideological differences between regions. So the Southeast builds a lot, Texas builds a lot, whereas like the Northeast and Northwest coasts don't. And I think a lot of that is driven by the cultural and ideological differences. In Texas, the idea is like, this is my land. I'm going to build, you know, whatever I want on my land. We don't really have that here. So, I mean, this is a long way of saying I don't have a great answer for you. I would like to see a few pockets of the country take this challenge as an opportunity for them to kind of grow in stature and in status. And, uh, and if they did that, maybe yeah, maybe people would have more than three options for where to live if they want access to the best jobs.
0: And and to your point, it's certainly not like a top-down. Like the, the the minister of innovation, uh, whatever that means, uh, can't just decide. Okay, we're going to make uh, Montreal the AI capital. Like you, yeah, you have to you have to do a bit, a bit more than that, and it has to be industry-led and people-led. Uh, you you did mention blockchain in Calgary, and I I did want to ask you while I have you. Uh, we, we saw Pierre, uh, Pierre Polyev, the Conservative uh, leader uh, nominee. Uh, he, he was out in London, Ontario. He bought a Sharma using Bitcoin and he, he said that he wanted to make Canada the crypto capital of the world or the blockchain capital of the world. I'm wondering if we could just ask you some basic questions, because I know you, you you mentioned on Twitter, you tweeted, I like where this is going. So to, to people who don't have a background, they don't understand blockchain or, or crypto, can you can you just sort of give us a 101 lesson here on, on, on what it means and uh, how, how, how Canada can accommodate this sort of new uh, industry that, that, we're, that we're seeing? I mean, B- Bitcoin's been around for a decade, but it seems like it's just suddenly become really popular. And so maybe you can comment on that as well.
1: Yeah, so and I'm I'm certainly more kind of familiar, well versed with the Bitcoin side of things than the broader blockchain or, or crypto universe. So Bitcoin, very simply, is kind of like the first form of money we've had in a very long time that is not um, that doesn't have its monetary policy decided by a central bank or or kind of constrained in any way by by a government. So something like we've had the separation of uh, the state and the church, and now Bitcoin represents the potential for the separation of the state and and money. Um, And it's kind of like an Internet native form of money um, that facilitates transactions and some to some extent um, acts as a store of value without the need for any third party intermediaries, including government, um, having a a say in in how it operates. The the reason why I'm kind of like... uh, I don't know if excited is the right word, but, but like I, I like the fact that that Pierre is going in this direction. Is is I do think that our money is going like our lives are going online, so our money is going online. And I think that there are two visions for how the future looks. You know, if our money goes online, one vision of the future is is within the world of what's called central bank digital currencies, and this is where we decide that paper cash is doesn't have the utility that it once had because we're all operating and transacting online. Whether like like online explicitly or, you know, with a square point of sale terminal at a, at a coffee shop, we're not exchanging pieces of paper anymore. Um, so just at some point our, our money will go online. Um, it might be a central bank digital currency, which is again, fully controlled and governed and regulated by the Bank of Canada and maybe to a lesser extent or maybe to a greater extent, depending on how the politics go, um, the Ministry of Finance and, and other branches of government. Um, or you go in this other direction, where the online form of money is not um, defined or dictated or and, and regulated or anyhow kind of controlled by the federal government. And I think that that second scenario is probably more hopeful if you care about things like privacy and autonomy and self sovereignty. Um, we've seen very recently, like a lot of federal government actions in in you know freezing people's bank accounts and that sort of thing. That becomes exponentially easier if all money is is like a ledger in a Bank of Canada database. Um, so I guess without going too deep into like conspiracy theory territory, I just think it's better and there's a better set of incentives if the money is a little bit out of the government's reach.
0: Well, what what a precedent to set that you can fr- freeze the bank accounts of your political adversaries if you don't like what they're doing. I think that that probably awaken, awakened a lot of people, not just in Canada, Uh, But all over I I was watching on Twitter as sort of some of the leading uh, blockchain and cryptocurrency people were you know, writing essays and writing Twitter threads, concerned about what kind of precedent Trudeau and Chrissy Freeland just set by by freezing uh, bank accounts of, of people that they that they disagreed with. So, so uh, just final question for you about uh, Pierre's in- announcement. How would Canada do this? How would we uh, situate ourselves and position ourselves as being a leader? I know El Salvador recently adopted uh, crypto, a Bitcoin, as a, a legal tender uh, that that has to be accepted by all businesses in that country, and there's. Sort Sort of seen as a I think they have a young president who's who's uh, very apt to these kind of things what what, what could Canada do and, and uh more specifically what, what in Pierre what Pierre have announced uh what, what kind of things can Canada do to to create the condition to become the leader?
1: Yeah I think the first thing you could do is, is like somewhat of a Hippocratic approach. So like first do no harm. Um, I think we're gonna see a lot more uh governments kind of crack down on digital currencies explicitly because they don't control them. And, you know, most of our policy at this point is is a blended kind of fiscal monetary policy, MMT, you know, type of of scenario. And that becomes a lot harder to enact. It becomes a lot harder to kind of set the the, whatever parameters you want for your electoral success through monetary policy if the money is, is no longer controllable. So I think that a lot of governments will start cracking down on cryptocurrencies and maybe on Bitcoin specifically. So first, do no harm. I think, I think a, a Pierre Polyev government, let's say that made it explicitly clear that Bitcoin would be allowed, if not encouraged, to kind of operate as it does for people to own it, to hold it, to transact in it. That would be very positive. Um, on, the, on the policy front, kind of beyond that, I think something like, so right now, um, it, on any foreign exchange trade, there's an exemption. I think your first $200 aren't subject to capital gains taxation. I think if you applied something like that to Bitcoin, but with a much higher threshold so that the problem with Bitcoin, people hold Bitcoin, but the reason one of the reasons why they don't spend it is if you spend your Bitcoin, you're, you're really selling it for whatever you're buying with it. And that's a taxable event and you're subject to capital gains taxation if you do that. So I think kind of like through some similar mechanism to how we deal with Forex, but maybe with a higher threshold, exempt Bitcoin from capital gains taxation. That would kind of right off the bat maybe just shy of el salvador make canada the friendliest jurisdiction to bitcoin um so you know if i were advising him on his bitcoin agenda i might i might suggest to go there and then i also think that like the, the the rhetoric matters i think if he's rhetorically supportive of innovation in the space and rhetorically supportive of this philosophical idea of a money that's uncontrolled and uncontrollable by government i think that's encouraging and you'll see a lot more Um, People participating in the market, including entrepreneurs who who will build things that I can't even, uh, you know, anticipate on this call.
0: Great. Well, thanks so much, Chris, for your for your thoughtful uh, take on, on all of these issues. I hope that the uh, p- people in power or people advising people in power uh, p- pay attention to some of the uh, solutions that you had, because certainly when it comes to both affordability and the idea of, of, of having, uh, you, you know, your assets protected, including your bank accounts, uh, that there's there's a lot of opportunity that Canada has uh, and, and to become a leader in, in the tech space as well. So thank you so much uh, for joining us. We really appreciate your time.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: All right, that's Chris spoke. I'm Kenneth Malcolm and this is the Kenneth Malcolm show.